Hey, Annie, guess what? What? We just launched a business of biotech newsletter. Yeah? Yeah. I know what you're thinking. What am I thinking? We don't need another newsletter. Yeah, I might have been thinking that. Annie, I swear on my grandpa's grave, you're going to like this newsletter. That's a pretty bold swear, Matt. Uh, Hear me out. It's monthly, only once a month. It's ad-free, and it's modeled after the Business of Biotech podcast. It's got the same insight from the builders of biotech that you see in the podcast. So what's not to like? That actually sounds like it doesn't suck. Pretty high praise, Annie. Check it out. Bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Go there and sign up for this newsletter. You won't regret it. Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and when I made plans to visit San Francisco for the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, I thought, why not take this show on the road and knock out a few episodes at the annual biotech partnership and funding frenzy that is this show? So here we are in the Mobile Business of Biotech podcast recording booth uh, with Dr. Matt Coffey, president and CEO of a mid-clinical biotech called Oncolytics. That company is developing immunotherapeutic agents that activate the innate and adaptive immune systems and weaken tumor defense mechanisms, and its pipeline is broad and aggressive. For his part, Dr. Coffey is pretty much an Oncolytics lifer. He's been running point there in one capacity or another since its founding. And on today's show, we're going to learn what he's been up to. Dr. Coffey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's my pleasure. Um, How's the show going for you so far? Busy. I mean, it always has been. It always will be. Um, How many is this for you? You've been here a few times now? uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) More than than you care to count? More more than I get. The the last, in the before times, you know, it was we went every year and then during... COVID, it was kind of nice just to be able to do it virtually because I find the city, you're always walking up a hill in the slashing rain. Yeah. So, you know, you always go through a pair of shoes. You usually lose a suit along the way. So uh, we're blessed right now with sunshine. Right this minute, right this minute. I've been here for two days now, and this is the most sunshine I've seen. It's been like 15 minutes. But it's an event. It's right of passage. You have to go to this every year, and, you know, you you meet all the same people. They have all the same complaints, and it's always exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you noticed anything different? I mean, so far, I know it's early in the show, but different in the tone this year than years past? Uh, I think there's some optimism. You know, the last year, I mean, biotech really, I think, hit the bottom at the trough, Um, and I think people now are... You know, starting to see the light. Um, been a flurry of M&As in the last couple of deals, or in the last couple of days. So I think you know people are seeing optimism. I think people are just excited to be out of the house and having some normalcy. You know, and actually being able to go out and see the people that they haven't seen. Like I bumped into people I haven't seen in three years. Yeah. So it, it's kind of nice to be able to go grab a beer with someone that you haven't seen, and you know, for sure. Yeah. So I want to I want to learn about you a little bit, uh, Dr. Coffee. So I, and your 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 background, your um, your education, and I guess it's uh, metamorphosis into oncolytics is interesting to me, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. You earned your your you earned your PhD in oncology and cancer biology from the University of Calgary in uh, 1998 and co-founded oncolytics in 1999. Correct. That's correct. Did I get that right. Yeah. So. Uh, at the time, I think you were you were focused on product development at the at the founding. You you personally? Well, it was this was my doctoral thesis. Um, yeah, so that's the story I want to unpack. Yeah, it was it was because kind of, that was just kismet more than anything. Um, after when you graduate with a bachelor of science, the world is not your oyster. <laughs> you are looking about going back to school because there's not a lot of you know people advertising for you know BSc needed. Um, yeah. So I took off to Southeast Asia, and I was living there for. 
an extended period of time trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was thinking dentistry or med school or architecture or something else. Hmm. Um, and my mom got cancer. Mm. So I was living in Thailand and I came back and I had amassed quite a student loan. And it was May, so I couldn't start any programs because I hadn't applied for anything. But I'd done a honors project in a lab and I went back to the guy's lab. I said, hey, can I start grad school because I want to be here for my mom and I can't pay these loans back. And he said, yeah, but only if you do a PhD. So I was kind of like, oh, well, it's a four-year commitment. So I was looking at the amounting debt and you know my mom's health, and I said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. That sounds great. And yeah. basically, the minute I signed up, she was fine. Like, oh, so, really? So, but it was great because working in a lab like that is a lot of fun. Like you work with very smart people. They listen to great music. They read great books. And grad school is very much self-directed. So, you know, hopefully, you get a good project. And and we were working with a virus um, that's a non-pathogen. Um, we used to grow it up and give it to undergraduates to practice techniques, you know, so that they could go work with a dangerous virus or an infectious virus. Wow, that's fun. I don't know if, uh, is that going to be okay with any uh, regulators that are listening in on the podcast? Well, no, it was funny because, you know, Biology 301, there was like a couple hundred kids in this class who so would grow up like a leader of the virus and then we'd give it to them. And they would learn basic techniques because you know, it's a type 2 biologic. So it's basically like bacteria and yogurt. It doesn't cause anything. Yeah. But we figured if we were working with it, we could understand how other pathogenic viruses worked. Um, so we thought, okay, it's related to rotavirus. So if we can figure out how this grows, then maybe we can come up with new treatment options. And what we quickly found out is we could only grow it in cancer cells. And we thought, well, that's kind of a cool observation. And we kind of did the biochemistry backward. We, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we realized it would only grow in cancer cells that had activations in certain pathways. And then, you know, we were a basic virology lab. So when we said, okay, well, let's try this in animals, you know, the supervisor's like, are you kidding? Like, no, this is not what we do. Yeah. So we ended up collaborating with another lab, and we found that we could actually get it to replicate in animals, and it would eliminate the tumor, which really led to the formation of the company. So it, was, it wasn't intended. It was a very much a basic science. And I think this is why it's important that people still kind of fund basic research, because a lot of times, directed research doesn't go anywhere. You know, Asimov said, "No, no one ever screams Eureka." Everyone always goes, "Oh, that's funny," yeah. And that's very much you know what happened here. We just made an observation, and we just kind of went to the next logical steps, and you know, we ended up with something that potentially could have a huge impact in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, um, your your mom, she's 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 fine. Yeah, she turned eighty three yesterday. Wow! Congratu yeah. yeah, congratulations. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Um, she she was sort of a motivator. You, you know, you mentioned that when you came out of your undergrad, you were I don't want to say directionless, but you you shiftless. You, yeah, you, you could go with that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So she was sort of the motivation to get into drug development and and, and pharma. Oh, very much so. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of people are always motivated by something that's personal to them. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, if you're going to be passionate about something, it has to have a personal connection to you. So it's interesting because a lot of the basic research I did um, was in pancreatic cancer because it's a common pathway that allows this, this virus to replicate. Um, but a lot of it, looking back on it, I was flipping through my thesis for a recipe for something for one of the experiments. And a lot of it was done in breast cancer. And I think in the back of your head, you're thinking, you know, this is, you know, I've got two sisters, I've got two daughters, I have a wife. And yeah. breast cancer is going to impact so many of you know, the people in my life that you are, I think, unconsciously working towards, you know, to benefits. And I, and I think that's why science is exciting because you can make these impacts. Yeah. I had a, a conversation uh, on the business of biotech not too long ago, a few episodes ago with uh, 
for for uh, for Bio um, and and Paul Brezgi. So it's a, it was a, a, a VC firm and a, 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 a preclinical biotech that the VC, VC firm is is funding. And um, Dimitri Kuzmin, Dima Kuzmin from um, from For Bio made a comment that stuck with me about the the danger that the VCs sometimes consider when uh, considering investing in a company that is sort of emotionally motivated, that where, where the leadership has a super close connection to a, to a disease. Is that, is that something that ever strikes? It's funny because it, it struck me and he, and he, and he had a pretty solid rationale for the, not, not, to, he, it wasn't like he's in this case, in fact, this episode that I was interviewing for, they were funding a, a company whose leaders were uh, closely tied, you know, who had emotionally invested, I should say. Um, but he, but he talked about from an investor standpoint, you know, this is sometimes a red flag because we want to, we, we, we might scrutinize a little bit more closely where the company's coming from and how it's being put together. Or not closely enough. I think, you know, if, if, cause there are a lot of people I know where they have started a company because a family member has some rare genetic disorder and that becomes the focus. And I think the problem, and we've strived very hard to hire, I, I have never hired anyone dumber than me. Like, I always want to get someone who's going to be very critical, who's not a sycophantic kind of person, because yeah. if you fall in love with your own product, you lose objectivity. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to scientifically working through it, you're emotionally working through it. So I think there is a risk of that. And that's why I think it's important that your scientific staff is somehow separated. Like We typically work with university collaborations. Um, because those guys have to publish or perish. So if something isn't working, they'll kill it immediately. Yeah. Um, just because they can't you know, become emotive about it. They, they won't publish, they won't get the grants, they won't be able to move it forward. So I think you have to build in um, basically firewalls to ensure that you're, you're doing the right thing and that everyone remains objective. But I think the VCs are absolutely correct. If someone's too close to the project, they're not gonna see the mistakes. They're not going to, you know, I think, dig in deep enough to understand that maybe their baby's ugly, you mm-hmm. know, maybe they should change directions or, you know, if you become functionally fixated, you know, I love the stories like things like um, Viagra. I mean, they, they created that to deal with uh, hypertension. Mm. And one of the side effects when, you know, at the end of the day, like this was somebody's baby, someone had created this drug to treat heart disease. And at the end of the day, the study failed and they couldn't retrieve the drug from males. And they finally sent around a male nurse who said, you know, this stuff's great. I'm not giving it back under any circumstance. So the guy who's creating it for hypertension probably doesn't want to know that it has this new treatment effect. Yeah. But the marketing guys, the other scientists will come in and say, hey, listen, this is treating something that we didn't even think of. So the objectivity, I think, has to be there. But that's the board. You know, that's the responsibility of your board, your directors and your employees to make sure that the founders aren't going off the rails. Yeah. And you, you supported this, the, you know, the point that the Dima made in that in that conversation. That oh, absolutely. You've got I think a, it's a real yep. issue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the the. Uh, I'm going to have you pronounce it. As you know, what, let me try. Palario rep. Palario rep. Palario rep. Palario rep. Yeah, I was way off on that. No, one. you're pretty close. Better than most. Yeah. So so you already uh, sort of alluded to the not eureka moment, but the you know how did how did you put it? Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's funny moment, right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit more about that discovery and then maybe get into what the molecule is. Well, the original project was owned by a guy named Jim Strong, um, who actually does Ebola research now in Winnipeg. Mm. Um, 
he was looking at it in terms of you know how it would grow. We thought it was actually binding to the EGF receptor, which is a common overexpressed receptor on cancer cells. And you know we looked at that, and then we realized it wasn't binding the receptor. It was that receptor was changing the conditions of the cell. So a lot of time, cancer cells um, lose functions or they gain functions. Like I said, cancer cell is just a, a normal cell that's lost its ability to, to control its own growth. Um, so it's got to gain a function. It grows really, really well now. But what some of the things they'll lose is their ability to uh, react to a viral infection. So what we realized is these cells were very, very susceptible to a virus that really doesn't cause any ailment. Like rheovirus was discovered in 1959 in the heyday of microbiology where everyone thought, okay, you have a virus that has to cause something. But the reality is most viruses are species-specific or plant-specific, like tobacco mosaic viruses, common in, in tobacco plants. It doesn't do anything to any of us. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in this environment, people think virus and they, th they think something, you know, hostile. Most viruses don't do anything because they rely on their host to replicate. So the worst thing that they could do is kill their host because it, it kills their own replication. Mm -hmm. um, so we were just looking at it sort of in terms of, you know, this benign pathogen, what could it do? Um, so we were very fortunate in the sense that we were able to, you know, take this and put it into an animal model and not have any ill outcomes and still get the, the tumor removed. But for a long time, this whole field, the oncolytic viral field, we really thought the viruses were killing the cancer cells because of lysis. And really, that's the small part of what they do. Um, do you watch movies? Sure. Like, I'm a movie guy. Like, I stay up all night with the kids watching these things. And I have a real fetish for, like, bank robbery movies. Hmm. Um, so when you see the guy walk into a bank anonymously, and he's got the trench coat and the fedora, and he slides the note under the teller wall saying, you know, give me a bag of money and non-sequential bills. And he walks out, and he opens the bag, and it explodes in that purple dye. Yeah. What oncolytic viruses are is that purple dye. What they do is they have very limited replication in the tumor, but they mark the tumor as foreign. Like we discussed very briefly, cancer cells come from your body, so your immune system often doesn't recognize it as a threat because it's derived from your body. Um, if you can take that cancer tissue, though, and inflame it or label it in a way that your immune system can see it, um, then it can become very, very potent. And we can use them with other immunological agents um, that drive this response even further. So we can take something like a virus that's non-pathogenic um, and use it in a way that labels the tumor for destruction. And what's really neat about this is when your immune system steps in to eliminate these virally infected cells, the byproduct is it creates a vaccine against the tumor itself. And we know this um, sort of in the last 10 years. If we cure an animal of their disease, we can't reimplant it. So the body will reject it. Mm -hmm. And what we can take is animals who've been cured of disease and transplant their immune system to a naive animal and try and put the tumor in, and they'll reject it. So the virus itself knocks over that first domino, if you will. It labels the tumor as foreign, and it allows the immune system to become very active against it. And for agents like checkpoint blockade, um, they're dependent on having T cells that recognize the tumor, and many patients don't have these. So if we can go in first and challenge the immune system in a way that we create these T cells that recognize the tumor, then when we go in with checkpoint blockade or something else, these become very, very targeted agents that become very, very effective. And we recently just presented some data um, in pancreatic cancer with a checkpoint inhibitor called T-centric, and 70% of the patients were having objective response um, and at, at about a six-month PFS at this point, where historically that response rate should be 15% and the PFS should be two to three months. 
So it can have this huge impact um, on, on patients' uh, progression-free survival and ultimately overall survival um, with something as innocuous as a non-pathogenic virus. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's a really interesting time, and I think we're benefiting as a group because of the better understanding of Im immunology. Um, we didn't have the tools to look at T-cell expansion and what they were expanding against. So in the last five years, I think we've just been provided a treasure trove of tools that really allow us to hone and work with these agents so that we can have positive outcomes for these patients. Yeah. What, uh, what went into shaping the, the indications that Oncolytics pursues? I hate to say it, but it, immunological um, agents don't work in everything. Well, all cancer drugs don't work in everything. I mean, what you give for prostate is not what you give for ovarian. Mm -hmm. um, with immunological drugs, though, um, and we've seen this with checkpoint blockade, they basically tried every indication to see where it worked well and where it didn't work. Um, very similar to, unfortunately, the approach that most companies have to take is you have to trial it in different indications to see where we have an activity and where we don't. And to your point about you know not being you know objective enough, you have to look where you had a failure and just say it didn't work, cut it loose. Yeah, you know, we we just can't follow up on negative leads. So we you know looking back at the data, we had single agent activity in all comer studies in women with breast cancer. Um, we had some really nice result in pancreatic cancer. Um, we've seen early signals in multiple myeloma. Now, we've tried it in, you know, things like ovarian didn't seem to do very much. We, we tried it in, in prostate cancer, didn't seem to do very much. So we're going to have successes and failures. But now that we have, like in the, in the instance of HR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer, we doubled overall survival in a randomized study. So we have a very good signal. Um, we're in a co-development agreement with uh, Pfizer, Merck, Serono to pursue that signal. And we'll get a readout this summer. Um, and if, if it looks positive, we'll be stepping into a phase three program there. Um, the PANC result, we had often seen, and again, this is something you see with immunotherapies. We don't see changes his, in, historically in PFS, but we get these big OS wins. And we did one study years ago now in pancreatic cancer, and we really didn't see much in terms of PFS. They progressed actually sooner than we had expected them to. Um, but we had 50% you know, one-year survival when historically you'd expect 20. Yeah. And we had like 25% two-year survival. So we said, okay, we have a good signal. Um, and we were collaborating with Roche, and they said, well, why don't we pursue this? And the interesting thing is checkpoint inhibitors have failed in more indications than they've succeeded in. But because of how this agent works, we might be able to go back to those indications where checkpoints have failed um, and make it a success. And we think that's what we're seeing here in pancreatic cancer because checkpoint inhibitor really hasn't done much in pancreatic cancer. Um, there's been a string of failures, just really no activity. So to be able to come in and see a 70% response rate, and that includes complete response. So you can imagine someone with pancreatic cancer, you know, seeing complete elimination of their disease, it's dramatic. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're going to be, you know, pursuing the positive signals and hopefully we'll have corporate partnership to allow us to pursue, you know, new leads as well. Because I think something like this, it's, it's basically labeling the tumor as acting as an adjuvant and there's not a, a consequence from the patient's health perspective. Um, what we're seeing is like flu-like malaise, arthralgia, myalgia. So basically, the feeling that you get after a vaccine. I don't know yeah. if you've gone for COVID. I felt like hell for the next day. Yeah. That's what the patient's reporting. And really what that is, it's an interferon release. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, this is a really exciting time for the company. Um, we'll be hopefully starting two phase threes this year um, in HR positive breast and in, in pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll make an impact in these patients' lives. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, 
into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash emerging biotech. Yeah, uh, that patient population could potentially be, you know, across these indications, could could potentially be sizable. Um, what is the, you know, this is the this is the question that makes the PR and IR people a little bit nervous because it's kind of forward looking, right? They hate those words, forward looking. Uh, but but what would uh, a manufacturing paradigm look like? Looking at you know, phase three and and perhaps beyond a commercial. Well, what's nice about an approach like this is. The technology has been around for, for forever. It's basically vaccine production. So we could, in a standard 100-liter bioreactor, so it would fit in this room very comfortably, and it's not a big room. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, you would grow feeder cells. You would infect those. It would go through a lysis step. Uh, there's a, a three-step purification process, and it produces about 70,000 dosages. So um, you can very effectively produce large quantities of this. But, I mean, we're, we're seeing this now. I mean, with anyone who's producing vaccines, um, the only difference is we're, we're doing a much higher dose given much more frequently. But, you know, we will be more than able to um, match the demand for, you know, indications like breast and pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Okay. I, I finally caught the Calgary there when, when you said process. Oh, yeah, we say process, not process. We say process. Yeah. That's right, yeah. I grew up near, I spent a lot of time near Buffalo, so I, I, we were close to the Canadian influence. I haven't but dropped an A yet, have I? I haven't heard the A, no. It'll come out. No. I promise. It'll make, it'll make an appearance. <laughs> uh, your, your clinical activity right now is, is pretty robust, right? You've got four clinical programs going on right now, is that correct? We, um, we're doing a study with Roche, it's called Goblet, and that pursues pancreatic, where we saw the signal, it pursues... Uh, colorectal in the first-line setting, third-line setting, and anal cancer. Um, we've just finished a program with Roche in early-stage HR-positive breast cancer, which was really a window of opportunity. So we, we took women with newly diagnosed disease and followed them over treatment for three weeks so we could actually do biopsies and then get the, the tissue from the mastectomy so we could actually see the changes to uh, the woman's overall health as well as the changes to the tumor. Mm-hmm. And um, we've finished enrollment now in a study with Pfizer called Bracelets, um, which we'll have a readout this summer. And really those are the, the stepping stones into the phase three programs. What's the, uh, what, what, take me behind the scenes of the nomenclature, goblet, bracelet, what's the, are, are, the, are these acronyms for something? Or yes, they they're long, drawn-out acronyms, and I didn't come up with them, so I would, okay. I would have to Google it. Um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. They're all named for these things, yeah. and it's not as obvious as you'd want it to be. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was just curious about that. Um, the, the, you, you mentioned the combination strategy with checkpoint inhibitors with targeted therapies. Share a little bit about that strategy. Well, really what we wanted to do, we, as I said, we ran a randomized study in breast, breast cancer that showed a doubling of overall survival. Um, so we wanted to pursue that, and the FDA actually said, okay, the, you have to have two randomized studies to get an approval, and the agency said, okay, this counts for one of them. Um, but we would like you to basically come up with a biomarker because some patients weren't deriving benefit, and they said, why do you think that is? And so often these patients are so heavily pretreated with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, their immunological response is just poor. Like mm-hmm. you've seen patients go through chemo and they're exhausted, they've lost weight. Um, they're not going to mount much of an immune response. So really an, an approach like ours isn't going to be very successful. So we needed a way 
to identify those. So we've been working with a company called Adaptive that lets you look at your T-cell repertoire, which is your adaptive immune response. And what we're looking for is patients, when they've been successfully treated, um, they'll get a big pop in their T-cell populations, which means their immune system has seen the tumor now. Um, so we can start to identify patients who have had uh, a positive outcome. And we can identify those patients as early as you know two to three weeks. So you can imagine for some of these immunotherapies uh, where they only really give a positive rate in OS, they could be on study for a year and not know if they're deriving any benefit or six months. So what this allows us to say is, listen, you've done very well. Your immune system is responding the way, which is just a way of keeping patients on study. And it, it's good for the morale of these patients because, mm-hmm. you know, end of life, you know, everyone just needs some good news and they just need to know that, you know, they are responding to the treatment. And for those who aren't, importantly, it lets them get onto a therapy that could potentially be life-saving for them or life-extending for them. So it lets us get patients who are successful on study and to quickly get rid of the ones who aren't because they have such a finite amount of time. So we started that study um, and we were collaborating with Pfizer and they said, you know, based on how this works, you know, would a checkpoint inhibitor enhance it? So we repeated that 213 study where we saw the doubling of overall survival and we added a third exploratory arm. Um, As I said, we'll give a read on that this summer. Um, We'll be stepping into that phase three later this year. Um, in terms of what we're doing with Roche, they also looked at the data um, and they said, okay, well, listen, this it, it causes an accumulation of T cells, it causes new tumor reactive T cells, it causes overexpression of PDL1, and that led to the collaboration on a study called AWARE, which was the window of opportunity study. When they realized how uh, efficacious it could be with T centric, they expanded that into the goblet study, which really looks at GI malignancy. And it really gets us back to this concept of does this allow checkpoint inhibitor companies to pursue indications that hitherto weren't able to respond to this type of approach. So really what we're looking to do is to modify the tumor microenvironment in a way that would make it susceptible to checkpoint blockade. Mm-hmm. So the product works well with chemotherapy, but you know, looking at the result with pancreatic cancer, no one has seen a 70% response rate. It's it's shocking. Like we've we presented to KOLs and they've just said we've not seen results like this. This is outside of the pale. Um, and this is why I think it's important that we interrogate this um, much more um, robustly in a randomized setting so that we can, you know, get the regulators to take a look at this and get the approval. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm assuming that that uh, pancreatic cancer data is pretty central to your uh, your, your pitch plan here at JPM. I very mean, much this, so. This is very. This is probably not the first time you've said it in the last couple of days. It, 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 it's not the last. It's not the first time I've said it in the last hour. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, the breast cancer result we can't talk about it until June. Well, well, the, the, the abstracts will go live in April. But the pank is it's just a stunning result, and it was funny because. It was an open label study, and with pancreatic, you know, you don't anticipate a lot of responses. So yeah. the way it was designed was a Simon two stage, where we were looking for three responses in the first fourteen patients, and then we could expand the study. And I remember, you know, I was walking on a treadmill. We were on a group call, and they said, "Okay, we we've got the results on the first three patients," and you're thinking, "Okay, let's hopefully there's a response." And they said, "All three of them responded." <laughs> you're like, what? So I remember I almost fell off the treadmill, yeah. and you know, I phoned our CFO and I said what do you think? And he's like, it's unbelievable. And I said, okay, either that's a fluke and we'll never see a response again, or the rest of the study is going to look just like this. So, you know, every, your first patient on any study is either a very good response or it's toxic as I'll get out. Like there's never a middling response on your first patient. So the first three patients, it was, it was 
painful because we put the first three on and then there was a safety review, so we didn't treat anyone for three months. So we had these three patients who had these very durable responses. You know, some of them went out for like a year, and then we had to get approvals from the sites, from ethics, from PEI, which is the German version of FDA. Um, but the investigators were really great about it because during that safety period, they lined all the patients up. So, you know, we were all excited, but, you know, you have three patients with the data, so there's not much it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as PEI said that we could start the study again, they, they jammed 12 patients onto the study. And then we're all sort of sitting there because you've got to wait eight weeks. And, you know, some of the patients had a response, so, like, we blew past what we wanted to see on the whole study. And then the interesting thing is some of the patients weren't having responses until four or six months. Hmm. So typically with chemo, you would expect to see earlier changes. Um, it's the immune system that takes a long time. And this is why we get OS readouts, because it takes a long time for your immune system to grow and adapt to the, the tumor challenge. Yeah. So it was funny. I remember by summer, you know, we were seeing seven, eight patients responding because we said, okay, you know, if we get to six, it's a home run. And then we got to eight, and then we got to nine. So it was, it was, it was a very exciting time for the company. And then you start planning the phase three just because you don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, what what is that? Give us some uh, insight into what what happens between now and and phase three. Like, what's going on at at Oncolytics to prep for that? Well, we're it's not a terribly large approval program because PANC is such an unmet need. Mm-hmm. So, we're working with our partners. We're working with cooperative groups. Um, the FDA just granted us fast track designation for it. Um, so, we're just trying to find the most expedient path to a phase three. Um, hopefully, incorporating partnership. Um, to offset some of those costs. Um, but at the same time, it's a balancing act. We want to actually be able to create as much value for our shareholders as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do want to play an active role in it so that we can you know, grow with the program. You mentioned uh, partnerships, and it, it begs the question, what, uh, you know, what, what Matt Coffey wants to see Oncolytics become. You know, it, it's interesting. Another forward-looking uh, uh, question. Uh, yes, so in the crystal ball. Um, what I'd like to see happen is basically to prove out the concept of pain and breast cancer, um, get to a point where our market cap reflects the work that we put into it, and then I would like this to be you know, explored in every indication possible, and the only really way for that to happen is through an acquisition through a large pharma that would take this under their wing and run with it the way they have with some of the checkpoint blockades where they've run mm-hmm. dozens, if not hundreds, of studies to really find out where this product works and where it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, no, no experiment ever really fails. You may not like the outcome. Sure. Um, but it does tell you a lot. Like, it's not going to work in every indication, but, you know, it seems to work in breast. It seems to work in bank. I think it'll work in colorectal. Um, so it's just really a matter of finding a niche for it because you do want to help these patients. Like mm-hmm. you do want it. Like, I mean, this is going to affect my family members at some point. It's going to affect people I know. And it would just mean everything if you could, you know, give these people an extra Christmas, an extra birthday, you know, without a lot of the side effects. And I think we're getting to a point with personalized medicine where, you know, it'll hopefully become more like diabetes where we can, you know, extend the life by you know, 24 months, 36 months. And in a way that doesn't prevent them from leading a life that they want to live. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sh- should that uh, come to fruition? Should that you know plan work out and a, a big pharma t- takes the, the product under their wing and, and, and beyond uh, the clinic, what next for, for Matt Coffey? Are you going to m- remain a, a drug developer? I think so. I always laugh that I'm going to open a bicycle shop. Um, okay, that'd be cool. Well, you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, you didn't know if you wanted to be a zookeeper or an, ar- or an architect. I just wondered if that... <laughs> I, I think, you know, this is the best career because you can make such a positive impact in so many lives. Um, yeah. But it was interesting because this I went from a bench scientist to the CEO and, you know, one of the guys in the company, uh, Andrew Gattararo, he said, you've gone from being a player to being a coach. 
And, you know, it's true. And I hope that we create an environment within the company where people can succeed um, and take products like this forward and move them and, you know, create an environment where people actually want to work in it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I do sort of miss the bench sometimes, too. You know, 2 o'clock in the morning when you get the positive result. Um, it's pretty thrilling. You know, yeah, yeah. Now well, I hear about it in an email from someone who's working at the lab at 2 o'clock in the morning who says, oh, by the way, it worked. But you don't get that sort of level of excitement when you're hands-on yourself. But, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't think I could go back to the lab. I don't think I have the patience. And I think how we've addressed it is, again, this concept of hiring above ourselves. Um, we actually don't have wet labs. We, we collaborate with universities uh, throughout North America and Europe. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, you can try and recreate model systems that someone has spent their entire life working on, or you can just pay them an overhead and say, you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're working with someone like Professor Richard Vile at Mayo, um, he's a world leader in, you know, amino oncology, uh, gene therapy, what have you. I, I can't micromanage him. He's yeah. forgotten more about it than I know. Yeah. So you give someone like that a project and you hope for the best. You know, you don't want to come back and say it didn't work. You know, your product's garbage. Um, but he's collaborated with us. He's actually now a member of our scientific advisory board. You know, likewise, we have collaborations throughout North America and Europe. And this is the best and the brightest. So not all of your products or projects work. Um, sometimes you go down a rabbit hole that just doesn't, you know, beat out the way you want it to. But if you're working with someone who's internationally respected, you know, there's just really no room to micromanage them because they are world experts in this. And you value their opinion and you trust them to, to give you an answer whether you like the answer or not. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, what haven't I asked you that I should have, Doctor Coffee? Like, what am I? What am I like grossly ignoring that, that that I should have asked you if I were a better host? Well, you were good enough to give me the questions in advance, and you, you know, usually I like to throw myself some softballs, and I I thought your questions were fair. I thought they were balanced, and I thought it covered the program quite nicely. And you, I, and, you, looked at the, thought, you looked at the outline. You said, oh, "This is a this is a, a nice inning of softballs." Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> that at all. But there's like some I'm going, "Oh, because you get questions sometimes. It's not in the public domain, and you got to go say, well, I can't really answer this question.'" But I thought they were they were fair. I mean, the best part about this job is you're just telling a story, you know. And this is such a great story because you know you've doubled someone's life expectancy, you know, at the end of their life. Yeah. So you know, I think it's important that people see because I, I mean, people think science happens overnight. You know, they're like going, oh, well, you discovered it on Wednesday. You should be selling it by Friday. That's not how this works. Mm. I mean, like when you look at the story of checkpoint inhibitors, they discovered those in the 90s. And they're just actually, you know, making their true impact, I think, now because science catches up. You're always going to get that one bright light that, you know, runs ahead of everybody else. But they're all on their own and they have no support. So there's that saying, you know, the, the first or uh, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's easier to follow along in the wake of successful programs because you get the assays that they've developed and you get the understanding that they developed. Because we started seeing, you know, survival benefit without PFS, and ten years ago that was considered heretical. Like people just said, and I remember seeing reports of it, and I thought, no, that's garbage. They've, you know, they fudged their results. They made a mistake. It's a fluke. And then, you know, they keep repeating it and they keep repeating it. And now it's a standard paradigm because we've changed how we treat cancer. Like, I mean, if you look at something like a checkpoint blockade, it's not acting on the cancer. It's acting on the immune system. And I think an agent like ours, it, it does both. It acts against the tumor by lysis, but the real value is what it does to the immune system. So it acts much more like an immunotherapy than we had ever thought it had. So the story is evolving. It's growing. I mean, hopefully you'll have me back in a couple of years when the phase three is wrapping up and, you know, hopefully we'll be looking ahead to launch this. Um, 
but no, I, I, I think it's a great time to, to take a look at stories like ours because I think we finally caught up to the science and I think we can make impacts in people's lives, not just our company, but companies in this space. Yeah. Well, I do look forward to having you back on in a couple of years when uh, we can talk about those phase three results and talk about your commitment to drug development, not, you know, ar- architecture, engineering, <laughs> or you know, becoming a, a zookeeper. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun uh, learning about you, Matt. Thanks for, for coming on with me. Thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. So that's Oncolytics President and CEO, Dr. Matt Coffey. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech, coming to you from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. The Business of Biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its support for new and emerging biopharma companies at Cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B, where you can sign up for our new newsletter. And if you like listening in on conversations like this one with Dr. Coffee, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review and some feedback. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>